What is up, Ansel? How's it going, my man? What's up, Christian? I see you're in different uh, climes today. Yeah, no, I'm in a I'm in a different part of the country, hanging out with my parents. Uh, as you can see, you got the childhood uh, weight <laughs> kit in, in the room behind me. I'm in the extra room right now, uh, but it's nice to have more space. Uh, SF, uh, as soon as you walk out the door, you got to wear a mask. Um, yeah. So it's nice to just have some space that you can walk around comfortably. Is it a suburban setting? Yeah. Okay, nice. Yeah, yeah. so it's nice. Uh, definitely definitely not urban like where I'm, where I'm at. Yeah. But yeah, we got a really exciting show ahead of you guys. Uh, we are diving deep on Asia, and Ansel's actually even going to go through some of the history about the, the Bank of China. But before we get into that, let's, uh, let's give Bisk a quick shout out. Uh, you guys have heard it a lot before, but BISC is a really great way to acquire Bitcoin with a ton of different payment methods, including uh, cash, wiring, um, all that kind of stuff. It's all about getting fiat into Bitcoin and not needing you to actually uh, register or create an account. Um, BISC, instead of a normal exchange, BISC is actually software that you download and then uh, when you download and you run BISC, it enables you to coordinate buys and sells, you know, with people digitally, uh, geographically dispersed, and it enables you to coordinate a peer-to-peer uh, trading of Bitcoin. Infrastructure like BISC is incredibly important, and getting more and more liquidity onto something like BISC makes BISC better for everyone. Uh, so if you've been hesitant about BISC and you want to find a way to get coins without having to register on a KYC exchange, really recommend checking out BISC. It's a lot easier than you might think. There's a lot of amazing guides out there on how to use BISC. Um, and ultimately, you if you use BISC, you make BISC better for everyone else. And you just make a better and better place for people to get KYC free Bitcoins. Don't sleep on BISC. Give BISC a shot. And, you know, again, be part of this revolution the right way. Let's get into the show. There's new talk about a digital yen. Yeah, it's in Japan. And uh, we don't we don't really have a big update on the Fed because they just there's nothing really big happening news item for this week. So um, I did see this one about the digital yen. And we've heard about the Chinese digital yuan for a couple years now. So this is kind of a new, new wrinkle added. Um, I found a great article and I was just going to go through the article with you, uh, and with listeners. All right. So here from Asia times, uh, digital yen could reverse Japan's deflation. BOJ's magic bullet aims to hopefully assert control, construct confidence and tackle deflation. And I'll just note what, you know, one of my big things is that we're in a deflationary environment, not an inflationary environment environment. And they have use that word twice, just in the title and the subtitle. But let's get going here. So uh, in its quest to defeat deflation, the Bank of Japan has filled its boots and then some. It has hoarded more than half of all government bonds. Uh, It has cornered the stock market via exchange-traded funds. It has expanded its balance sheet to exceed the nation's entire $5 trillion economy, and nothing has worked. The modest amount of inflation Governor Kuroda generated since 2013 disappeared in the in a COVID fog, putting the BOJ back to square one. Now the BOJ may have happened upon a stealthy holy grail to revive uh, Japan's animal spirits once and for all, its own digital currency. 
then it goes into talk comparing it to the Bank of China and their digital yuan, uh, saying that this is kind of like a competition and Japan does not want to be left out. Um, I could go through this, but uh, it's, I think the bottom line is a lot of these people are saying that uh, the digital yuan, here's this, all things considered the digital yuan is about to rule the world, says Sasha Ivanov, founder of Waves cryptocurrency platform. And so that they're thinking that these CBDCs, specifically the Chinese yuan, is going to be a big player in the future. Um, in the next section, when we go over like the PBOC history, I can kind of point out why I don't think that's the case. But uh, bottom line is they think that Japan is in competition with China here directly. So then moving on here, the real promise, Japan, uh, though, faces a bigger challenge in the short run, reversing the deflation that has been lowering living standards for two decades now. A digital yen might do just that. The BOJ has been running some version of quantitative easing for 19 years, 19 years since March 2001. It has been flooding commercial banks with ever-growing tidal waves of liquidity to boost lending and create a wealth effect by inflating assets from stocks to real estate. And they're doing the same thing now, right, Christian? I mean, this is, it's nothing new. The U.S., the Fed, what the Fed is doing is they're just taking a page out of Jap, uh, Japan's playbook and uh, it hasn't worked in Japan. Why, why would it work in the U.S.? Do you have any thoughts up to this point here? So, I mean, we've heard commentators talk about everyone's turning into, into Japan and that trend seems to still remain true. The only difference is that Japan was kind of in its own bubble, um, whereas the U.S. and the dollar are raging on a global scale and kind of how everyone else does business. So I think that's a pretty big caveat uh, that differentiates the U.S. and Japan. So I don't know how that's going to actually affect the outcome. But directionally, I would agree that, yeah, this is nothing new. And uh, it seems as though the effects right now have been kind of consistent. Uh, between Japan's experience in the U.S. I, I totally agree with that. Moving on down, they say it's to tackle the uh, Andy Haldane, chief economist at the Bank of England, sees it as in the nature of what theorists call the zero lower bound barrier. As Japan and other authorities have found, consumers don't react as expected when interest rates turn negative. Uh, all too many respond by pulling cash out of bank accounts and saving. Central banks tend to be a good, <laughs> good at shepherding investors this way or that. I don't know where they get evidence for this. There's lots of unsupported claims in this article, but um, they're less well-equipped to tame the herd psychology toward caution uh, that can result from crisis policy steps like during a pandemic. This psychology can involve switching to gold, or it can be households and businesses deciding not to make big purchases in the belief that financing will be cheaper six months out. A, a digital currency would be a game changer, Haldane argues, by giving authorities greater control over household withdrawals. Central banks could at times literally limit or ban consumers from withdrawing cash or taxes could be imposed. That's, that's, that's a big statement right there. Severe stuff, admittedly. The point, though, is that the digital yen uh, would enable Japan to control in time, uh, some control in times of financial turmoil. Central banks just keep doubling down on what they're doing wrong. So the market is trying to say something and they just keep trying to stamp it out and needing more and more tools in order to, uh, you know, reach that goal or attempt to reach that goal of stamping out what the market is actually trying to do. That's my, that's my interpretation. 
Yeah, they, they think they can keep pushing and the consumers aren't going to do anything different either. Like what happens when they start doing this and, and banning consumers from withdrawing cash and tax uh, imposing taxes through the CBDC? Are consumers going to not switch their behavior and like go to Bitcoin or go to gold or something like that? Are they just begging? Are, is this the best stimulus for Bitcoin? I mean, I would argue that through doing this show, I've realized that the best marketing for Bitcoin is central bank activity. So probably, <laughs> probably, yeah, probably. Well, and like, this is just first order effects, right? When you look mm-hmm. at like the stuff that you talk about, like the breaking down of supply chains, like that is like, that's deflation is the breaking down of supply chains, misallocation of capital. Um, and ultimately that's what all of this central bank activity is doing. So it's not making anyone's life any better. It's just, you know, making everyone's life exponentially harder. Right. Yeah. I think what's interesting too about this article is it kind of, it tells you that they, this is, they know what they're doing. They know that they're going to use this to like capital controls, basically control everything you do with your money. And it's not even a secret. So I think that's interesting. It's bald face right there. Uh, skipping down a little bit here. So for, uh, for central banks, digital currencies have the potential to weed out other ills, whereas private crypto assets can lack transparency and basic security features. There is still debate over who invented Bitcoin. Central bank issued ones can be tightly regulated. They can police money laundering, terror financing, and tax evasion. They could also Lol. boost. Go ahead. Lol, as in, as in they're <laughs> not good at being money. <laughs> right. Yeah. And this is, I think this is a really important sentence here, this next, or this next paragraph. They could also boost economic confidence. The real power behind a digital currency, how Dane reckons, is how it can supersize the microeconomic levers at central bankers' disposal. So they think that this is going to give them greater control over every little microeconomic lever there is, and how that's just going to end so badly. Are these people even capitalists? Do they believe in free markets? It's, it's like pretty obviously not. No, they're central planners to the core. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then it just goes on a little bit more information here, but bottom line is that they're, Japan is looking at doing this in competition with Beijing and also hopefully to stop this deflation that they've been fighting for so many years. That was a very interesting article just to kind of get into the mentality like you, you pointed out of, you know, what maybe central bankers are saying, but then what, what's like the narratives that are being spewed as well. And it, it seems kind of obvious too that they're pointing out like, hey, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies can be used for nefarious activities. And that's a selling point for central bank digital currencies. So uh, that's not something to sleep on either. Well, yeah, ne- nefarious activities are anything they don't agree with. It's not really nefarious activities. It's just uh, they want to pigeonhole all economic activity into their, you know, uh, centrally planned routes that they want you to go down. And it's going to have to get worse and worse. We've, I've talked about this. I don't know if we've talked about this on the show, but um, capital controls will have to increase in the future because, pe- you know, people will, um, as, as, a con- as people want to flee these um, fiat currencies into Bitcoin or gold or whatever um, to keep people 
from doing that, they have to close down the off ramps of fiat currencies. And so they're going, capital controls are going to increase. So a CBDC, the next thing we'll hear maybe in six months or 12 months is going to be talking about how, oh, it must be paired with capital controls. So CBDC isn't enough. There has to be some capital controls that go along with it. So I, I think that we'll hear a lot more about that going forward. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I agree. And in the article, they pointed out that that's the point, right? Is to give them more control um, mm-hmm. and to not allow you to control your value, which is the other part of the coin. Um, do you want to summarize a little bit? Like, I guess, I think we can just move on to the PBOC from here. Um, okay. That was a really good summary of what is happening over in Japan. Okay, so the next thing, I just have some notes here on uh, the history of the People's Bank of China. Um, the U.S., you know, the Fed goes back to 1914. Um, 1913, I believe, Jekyll Island, right? That's the famous Jekyll Island meeting for the, the Fed. Um, but the PBOC book, is quite a creature of Jekyll Island, or a creature from Jekyll Island, classic Austrian book. Yeah, great, great book. Uh, you'll, you'll be like, what the heck? That actually, like five people created the Federal Reserve, but yeah, that's how it happened. So the PBOC is a lot younger. It was created in 1948, you know, with the CCP revolution over there. Um, But for 30 years, the PBOC was really the only source of credit creation within China. It was really the only bank within China for 30 years. Uh, They had obviously regional branches and things, but uh, the PBOC was it. And then in 1979, they opened up the U.S., uh, you know, the U.S. famously um, starts the, the trading a lot more. The China is starting to uh, industrialize. And so they break up the PBOC uh, into four big commercial banks. They're still around today. This is the Bank of China, uh, Construction Bank, the Agriculture Bank, and the Industrial and Commerce Banks. And these are the commercial banks, you know, the source of credit creation and loan creation in, in the economy. And at that time, the PBOC was relegated to just monetary policy. Um, It was still not independent, though. Uh, In 1979, it still remained under the finance ministry. Um, Same thing in Japan, too. I think even the BOJ in Japan is still under the finance ministry. They don't have, like, independence of the central bank over there. But uh, then in 95, it took all the way till 1995 for the PBOC to get, quote-unquote, independence and look a lot like the Federal Reserve System today. So they have... um, regional banks that, you know, member banks that uh, meet, and then they have monetary policy decisions, the uh, PBOC, they have somewhat of oversight directly to the the central party there in Beijing, but they are no longer under any sort of finance ministry or anything like that. The modern incarnation now of the PBOC dates back to 2003, when they uh, became members of the WTO, the World Trade Organization. And along with that came a lot of banking regulations and different things that they had to kind of modernize their banks even more. So really, the current PBOC dates back to 2003. That's it. It's only 17 years old, which when you think of it in that context, um, I don't know, it just puts it in a different light. It's not some gargantuan, uh, really sound bank. It's a brand new central bank. So what are your thoughts on this so far, the history? I think it's helpful to understand. And honestly, like, I feel like people look at things like Bitcoin and gold and they think that 
I mean, it, well, not gold, but they look at things like Bitcoin and they think like, wow, this is an experiment in monet in like monetary technology. Um, and really like that, what we're doing now is an experiment. And I think going through the history of the Bank of Japan, the history of the Fed, the history of the PBOC, like these are experiments that are less than a, a lifetime, you know, and in the case of the, the bank uh, or the PBOC, it, you know, I'm older than the PBOC. Right. Yeah. Um, so, and a lot of, you know, big companies in the U S are older, like not to say that being old is, you know, something that creates, you know, value just on its own, but um, the, these, there, there's not a lot of history behind what's happening right now. Um, and the history that shows that it's actually beneficial. Yeah. And we can see by looking at the history um, in 1979, when these commercial banks were created, the big four in China, that's when a lot of the credit creation started. So that was the beginning of the Chinese bubble, right? And then even the modern incarnation, the WTO, Chinese central bank, uh, is more recent than quantitative easing in Japan. So quantitative easing in Japan has been going on for 19 years, and the modern incarnation of the PBOC is only 17 years old. So it's very, very young. Um, And to think that I believe I want to tie this into kind of a future, uh, future looking. And that is that to think the next century is going to be a Chinese dominated century uh, is not knowing the history because it's just a brand new bank that, yeah, they have a lot of manufacturing, but uh, like there's nothing to say that it's going to continue to grow. It's just one big credit bubble that they've been around for. This is a hundred percent heuristic and I'm not a China expert. And I know you spend a lot more time focusing on China just in your own studies, but yeah, every single thing that happens from central controlled decision-making, like you can, you know, you can get lucky once you can get lucky twice, but long enough time horizon, these central planners are going to mess up. The incentives are skewed in that way. And ultimately they're not omnipotent. Like the reason why markets work is because Markets process the most amount of information and therefore make the best decisions. Whereas central planners are just limited in the amount of information that they can gather. And then they're limited in in the scale of whatever decisions that they do. We see this with the Fed and we're going to see this with every, every central entity and kind of going back to what we started off with. And that's why digital currencies are so exciting for them. Uh, central bank digital currencies because it enables them to scale their uh, power more. Yeah, great points. Uh, it's almost like, you know, the free market is going to route around these things. And so if the central banks are trying to control things by lowering interest rates or uh, printing money to buy bonds and things like that, the, the market is going to route around that. And eventually the piper has to be paid and things have to correct. Uh, so the, the central banks are not in ultimate control of anything. Um, but yeah, going back to the PBOC, I uh, just wanted to go through some of their, their numbers of like their, what kind of debts they have and things. So they, they hold a lot of U.S. Uh, treasuries. It went as high as $4 trillion in 2015, and today it's down to $3.4 trillion. Um, there's a lot of U.S. dollar denominated debt, roughly a trillion dollars. This is official numbers, so we don't really know. Uh, but there's over $2 trillion of external debt. So this is, you know, either denominated in euros, yen, 
uh, or dollars. Um, and they're, they're just a highly indebted, indebted country. Um, one thing also, I didn't, I don't think I read it, uh, from the yen, the digital yen article, but they're talking about how the PBOC wants to take a bite out of us dollar dominance. The U S doesn't have any yuan denominated debt. There's no way that people are going to switch to a yuan, a digital yuan, when they see what they're doing, uh, this, this kind of hostile takeover of Hong Kong. So I don't, I don't even see any like bullishness at all for the yuan going forward. I think it's going to actually force them to become more insulated and insular and not expand. Like they're done, they're, they've reached the extent of their involvement with the international markets. And now I think because they're the CCP, because they're authoritarian, top-down central planners, it's going to shrink and shrink. They're going to, their influence in the world is going to lessen going forward. So who picks up the slack in your mind? Is it, is it the dollar just keeps dominating from a monetary perspective? At this point, yeah. I don't, uh, there is no large alternative. I think the economies will just keep slowing down. Growth will approach zero. Uh, and what growth there is to be found is going to be found in alternative uh, parallel economies like Bitcoin um, and maybe gold might have some sort of parallel economy around it. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I think the growth is going to be centered in Bitcoin and slowly but surely the people will just leak over. That is my thesis. Yep. It's been your thesis for a while and it does make sense. Right. Um, and I've been talking about two alternative systems happening at the same time and yeah. Uh, as the open source permissionless system, Bitcoin, picks up steam, gains liquidity, it's just going to become easier and easier for people to migrate their activity to the permissionless system versus the permissioned system, which we are currently in. And no matter what they do to the permission system, it is permissioned uh, versus Bitcoin. No matter what you do at its core, at its root, it is permissionless and enables the individual. So that's probably the biggest, like, you know, the most macro way I think about what's happening to the world. Um, and with that, let's, let's jump into Bitcoin, the permissionless system. Price-wise, it's been boring. Uh, what's, what's your take on, on the price action so far this, since last week? Um, well, you, you've, we've talked about this before, and you've probably followed some of my uh, things, my writings about this. I think that we're in a post-having consolidation, just like last time. Um, it takes a while for the deflationary effects of the having to take hold. And we we're kind of seeing this now. I mean, it's very price is very stable. The floor seems to be going slowly up, you know, a hundred dollars a week or $200 a week. And I think that will continue. I mean, there will be sell-offs most likely, but they'll be very short and buying the dip opportunities. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's where I see the price up, up, up. And then eventually we kind of, get to some sort of blow off top um, or not blow off top, but you know how in the last cycle, 2016 and 17, we had these big blow offs and then 30% correction. Then it went up to the next high, 30% correction and the next high. So I, I mean, that'll probably happen very similar to that. And honestly, I feel like that kind of, we're in that stage of the stock market. We're going to, we keep seeing these, yeah. And I think that 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 might continue in in the stock market as well. Um, do you give any credence to uh, the stock to flow model or any of like the you know 
theories about that around Bitcoin price? I think the stock to flow model is very informative. It's not a hundred percent or anything like that, but uh, yeah, I think that the hardness of the money is what matters. And it's, it's a weird, you can't explain how it works, but that hardness of the money seeps in to everybody's consciousness and Bitcoin moves up in accordance, seemingly in accordance with the stock to flow model. I don't think it's like there's big investors. Oh, it's 1% inflation. Now we got to properly allocate our funds. I think that just happens naturally. You know, just like as you go um, up in elevation, it gets colder, you know, some natural process. So as, as the stock to flow um, goes down or stock to flow goes up, then, you know, the price just goes up. That's just a natural process of way, the way money works. There's a ton of excitement around just crazy moves in the DeFi shitcoin token space. I definitely feel like there is a shift of momentum, not momentum, but attention towards that kind of activity. Um, do you like, do you have any kind of observations about, you know, extreme volatility with shitcoins and then just, you know, very, very stable Bitcoin prices Any analysis around that dynamic? Well, I think you probably know a lot more about stable coins than I do. Um, my analysis on altcoins is just that they're illiquid. So yeah, they can pump. I think the top is in, they're not going to ever surpass that $500 billion market cap for the altcoins that it got in 2017. I think definitely going to happen. It's definitely going to be surpassed. Of just uh, altcoins, not including CBDCs or stablecoins, like just mm, altcoins. Yeah, I think the speculative market is big enough. And it's not because there's any value there. It's just a thing to speculate on. And as Bitcoin gets bigger, there's just going to be cascading value into shitcoins. Maybe, but I, I think we're we're kind of in a cycle right now. I just had this conversation on Twitter with somebody that um, that is too much of a buy side view. I believe, I think that you had to look at the founders have like, as these projects get older and they haven't produced anything, these founders want to exit. And there's, there's rumors around some things in the space. I don't know if we want to get into, but people IPOing and things like that. So um, I think these founders want to exit. So all this speculative fervor and any sort of pump in the future is going to be met by insiders dumping. And, and exiting their position because it's going to become, it's going to dawn on people that none of this stuff is ever going to, all these promises made are never going to come to fruition. Uh, so the founders are going to dump on these newbies and the market cap will be held down by that. Maybe. I mean, the problem is, <laughs> is that there's, there's constantly new tokens. So it's the newest, most illiquid tokens mm. that pump the hardest. Obviously there are old ones that also pump and it just, we're talking about orders of magnitude. So if there's orders of magnitude, new people coming in, you know, all of the existing people combined, you know, can't match their buying power of the new people. So, and that's a whole nother educational cycle to be repeated. And I think like Bitcoin education is exponentially better from when it was in 2017, like straight up 2017, I got into crypto. Ansel Linder was one of the very first people putting out good Bitcoin content. And like, thank you to you for um, helping me kind of get to Bitcoin only predominantly much more quickly. But now like you can look at the landscape. It's insane. Like there's so much Bitcoin only content. It's amazing. But there's also so much more noise around it. And I just don't see that trend ending anytime soon. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. 
Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, there's also really adverse uh, uh, incentives to create and pump your own shitcoin. There's massive adverse incentives in order to do that. Yeah. Well, I, I think maybe my view on these altcoins is my contrarian take because a lot of people think hey, there's going to be another altcoin season. There's going to be another altcoin bubble. And I feel like the contrarian side of things is to say the top is in. You know, these, these coins are not going to be able to attract, like the, the, the scams have been figured out. You know, Ponzi's don't necessarily always pump twice, right? They, they usually only pump once and then they're over. So um, I think that that is, that's a contrarian take for sure. I'm also contrarian on the deflation argument because everybody is saying it's inflation. So yeah, I have, I'm taking on the, these are my two contrarian takes, deflation and altcoins are dead. Yeah, no, and and you were and you, I think you were completely right and on point about tether and uh, pegged cryptocurrencies, uh, dollar, you know, dollar pegged uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, so uh, so you were saying, you, you're well, saying you know more be- about what's going on recently with them. So what, what's going on with the, the freezing of, oh yeah, stable coins, yeah. So, okay, uh, for those of you who have not been following the news, uh, last week, the Block Crypto broke two stories, first about USDC freezing some addresses or blacklisting some addresses, and then they followed that up with uh, Tether, on, especially Tether on Ethereum, blacklisting even more addresses and I think over $3 million worth of value um, total within those addresses. So. Uh, despite the massive growth in stable coins, despite uh, the massive utility in permissionless, unstoppable crypto dollars, uh, these things are still <laughs> tied. They're still tied to the dollar system, and they're actually not that permissionless and actually not that unstoppable. Especially if you're trying to move a meaningful amount, right? If you're some small, per- you know, if you're just a normal person moving around, you know, hundred fifty. 50,000, 100,000 even maybe, um, you probably are okay. But once you start getting up there, uh, you probably need to turn to Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin is probably the only cryptocurrency that is truly going to offer you the liquidity as well as uh, necessary unseizability and uncensorship and uh, uncensorable uh, properties. So what happens to those? I remember seeing that headline for USDC now. Um, What happens if they're locked? What what happens if those USDCs are locked in some other DeFi contract and they get frozen? So, I mean, technically the funds are still in the blockchain, but according to the smart contract, it's uh, the smart contract enables them to, you know, essentially freeze those funds. And mm-hmm. then, you know, ultimately they can also just not allow those funds to, to get into fiat. You know, I don't know specifically, you know, is are the are the funds locked into where they're locked, or um, are they just kind of black? Uh, I, I believe it. Like the smart contract allows them to backdoor and blacklist addresses. So uh, I do know that I, I do know it's not just like, hey, you can't turn this into real fiat. Like it is on the blockchain. Right, but my, I'm I'm wondering about if you are using those as collateral in, say, Maker. Yeah, it starts breaking stuff. Yeah, so there's a systemic risk, and ah, it just it just seems so fragile, doesn't it? Oh, the whole thing is extremely, and it's exponentially more fragile now. Uh, I think there's a story BYZX yesterday 
listed a token on what's it called Uniswap, and there's a bunch of scammers that were like also listing their fake BZX token on there, oh. and and they were and the scammers were selling their tokens or you know running you know running the sale more effectively than the real BZX. And BZX oh on Twitter gosh. is like we're seeing scams. These things are getting you know you know there are investors are being scammed on Uniswap. Uh, even Uniswap was saying like this might be a scam on there. So I don't know how they do that through the UI. That's obviously centralized. I mean, oh my yeah, goodness. it's a it's a house of cards and a breeding ground for scammy behavior. You have to worry about that with CBDCs as well. I mean, the scammy behavior is now centralized to the central bank and stuff like that. There's there's going to be all sorts of uh, uh, like the mac- the microeconomic controls are going to be uh, done directly by the central bank. But you don't have to worry about that with Bitcoin. Let's get back to Bitcoin. Bitcoin's price is flat. Obviously, yeah. that is frustrating to Bitcoin investors, especially they may be feeling FOMO because other things or other shit coins are going up. But Bitcoin's difficulty makes another extremely positive step forward. Uh, let's talk high. about the difficulty again. Yeah, it hit the all, all-time high, went up almost 10%, um, like 9.8% or something like that. Just keeps cranking up. I think last time we talked, it was headed that way, all-time high difficulty, uh, just bullish. You, you, are, you are way more into uh, the weeds on the difficulty in mining, I think, than I am. Um, not that much, but uh, what I do, what I have been really paying attention to is the narrative around S9s. So mm. for people that were paying attention maybe halfway through last year, there's like all these predictions. S9s are done. They're going down the drain. S9s are a miner that Antminer produced, and they built tons of them. They were the number one miner for a really long time, since what, 2016, I believe? Uh, yeah, 2016 they came out, I think, yeah. So that's four-year-old machines, right? Like think about your four-year-old uh iPhone or Android phone, like you're probably not using it anymore. A lot of people were speculating S9s are done as S17s, uh, whatever micro BTs, uh, miners are called M something, I'm blinking on the specific name, um, the S19, all these new machines that are much, much more powerful, but also much, much more expensive. Uh, they thought that those machines are just going to destroy S9 market share and people running S9s would no longer be able to stay in business. What we're seeing now is that almost all of the S9s that were there before this new influx of machines came in are still mining. And really what they're doing is those miners are being sold at under 50 bucks to people that can get really, really cheap electricity and still make the margins work. And they're effectively, the S9s are migrating to cheaper and cheaper electricity. And an observation that I made is that the difference between the fiat system is that the fiat system has planned obsolescence for hardware. The fiat system, like Apple, their incentive is to sell more phones. They need you to upgrade the phone. So even if the phone is a great piece of hardware still, maybe the 2016 iPhone is still a great piece of hardware, like they're going to build in planned obsolescence. They're going to make the software brick the phone, make the phone unusable because their incentive is to make more money by selling you another machine. Bitcoin doesn't have that incentive. Bitcoin does not waste the machines. Bitcoin just reallocates those those machines to areas that can afford to mine at cheaper price. Um, and I think that that's bullish. Bitcoin's going to keep seeking out cheaper and cheaper electricity. And every single computer that is added to the Bitcoin network 
is going to mine on the Bitcoin network as long as it's still working. Like not, you know, as long as the hardware is competitive, it's probably going to mine on there. And uh, the, it's like the stock to flow of ASICs being added is going down alongside with the stock to flow uh, or is going up along with the stock to flow of Bitcoin units. It's almost together. Um, and I think that that is just super bullish. So um, if price is lagging, look at hash rate. If hash rate is lagging, look at price. But uh, Bitcoin is always moving up in one one area or another. Yeah, it's very interesting because we were told for a long time that, you know, uh, well, we saw also for a long time that every two years or every year you needed to get new miners. And that, that no hasn't been the case. case. Yeah, it's actually been commoditized, right? This is the long-awaited commoditization of mining hardware. So, yeah, it's very, very interesting. Like, there's nothing that Bitmain can do to remove all of the miners that are already in the system. And, like, mm-hmm. that hash is occupies so much of the existing hash rate, that it's, it's difficult to, uh, to outcompete it. And so when you hear like people like, oh, governments are just going to take over mining, like it's not going to be that simple. It's not going to be that easy. Like you're not accounting for all like the, the, the hash rate is being distributed through the market. The market is distributing the hash rate and is decentralizing it. And I think that that's super bullish. Yeah. And as, as noobs come in, like the mining has noobs as well, just fresh capital to be invested and they're they're going to buy up those s9s to get started and um distribute it to other you know geographic locations so it's very it's it's very bullish not only for price and for like long lasting lindy effect of bitcoin but it's uh it's good for the decentralization too 100 percent, 100 percent. All right, guys, uh, while we're bullish, I think this is a good place to, to end it. Uh, <laughs> this was a really informative show. I really like getting into Asia. Um, I know we've been talking about guests. We're going to plan guests right after this. So um, hopefully we can add in some more elements. We're just trying to make this show better. So please give us some comments back, how we can improve, how we can make this more tailored to what you're looking for when you want to learn more about the macro around Bitcoin. And please, of course, share, rate, and review. Do all that good stuff. We are still trying to aggressively grow this show. We're putting out good information and uh, we need your help to, to get it out to the masses. Yeah. Sometimes the best place to comment might not be on Twitter with a tweet. It would be on YouTube in the comment section. So if you're watching this on YouTube, drop us a comment, make sure you like it. All right. Antel, where can people find you? Bitcoinmarkets.com. Also Bitcoin dictionary is coming out on Bitcoin independence day in a couple of weeks uh, that will be released. So you can find that at bitcoindictionary.cc. Awesome. Bitcoin Magazine is actually putting something out for Bitcoin Independence Day as well. I'm working on some exciting programming there. Um, So keep an eye out on all things uh, Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, Keep an eye out for the Bitcoin Dictionary. And lastly, you can follow me at CK underscore Snarks. Thanks for listening. And uh, yeah, catch you back next week. quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, 
or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.